want you to make an absolute golem ton of money, and by the way, I say it like that because that's how much money I want you to make, because when you do that, you can then fund other women. You can donate to other women. You can support other women. You can help other women. Welcome to Enoughness. My name is Lisa Wang, national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur. This is a show that dives into the deeply personal stories of top business leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and athletes who share the defining inflection points that help them embrace their life's purpose and answer the question, how much is good enough? Welcome to the Enoughness Podcast. I am so excited to have Cindy Gallup here with us today. And today I want to talk about fear. Fear of failing, fear of what other people think, fear of saying the wrong thing. And I specifically want to talk about fear because this is a woman who embraces the exact opposite of that, who has broken all sorts of barriers, is a pioneer in so many ways, starting as a top ad executive at BBH, launching and scaling the US arm of that, and becoming the founder of Make Love Not Porn Now, which is completely revamping the way that we think about real sex and happiness and pleasure. And Cindy, I fell in love with you from afar, from a while back when I read and heard what you had said, um, that you can't rule the world, you can't change the world if you care about what other people think. And I wanted to ask you, first of all, to just share where this mentality comes from, because I think one of the most insidious things that permeate society is fear, fear of what this mass of people think. So how did that mentality come to you? Um, I guess, you know, I, I can't really point to a moment or a process, um, but I can point to the fact that, you know, I've had reason to think a lot about what the fear of what other people think does to us um, in the course of building Make Love Not Porn. So, so essentially over the past nine years since I first launched it as a tiny clunky dot-com site and, and then building Make Love Not Porn.tv. And that's because I work, uh, and I find this utterly bizarre, but I work in what is literally the final frontier of tech, um, in sex tech. You know, I, um, in trying to open up the tech and business world's minds, um, I talk about the fact that the three huge disruption opportunities in tech today are sex, cannabis, and the blockchain. And ironically, investors are flooding into the other two more than they are the first. And so, you know, I realized as I began battling to raise funding for Make Love Not Porn, that my biggest obstacle finding investors was depressingly nothing to do with... Um, you know, any kind of rational um, obstacles or barriers. It was fundamentally this social dynamic that I call fear of what other people will think. You know, because, because when I'm talking to somebody about Make Love Not Porn, it is never about what they think. When you understand what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, nobody can argue with it, the business case is clear. It is just the fear of what other people think which operates around sex, unlike any other area. And that is why, as you've observed, you know, I now call out specifically the fact that fear of what other people think is the single most paralyzing dynamic in business and in life. You will never own the future if you care what other people think. Mm -hmm. And I want to start with, though, you as a young girl, because I know about all of your successes and 
you are such a role model, but where did Lucinda Lee Gallup start from? Well, I mean, I started from the same place as every other woman, to be perfectly frank. I mean, from the moment we're born as women, everything around us conspires to make us feel insecure about absolutely everything to do with ourselves. The way we look, the way we dress, the way we talk, nice girls do this, nice girls don't do that. We spend the rest of our lives coming back from that, and some of us, very sadly, never do. And so, you know, I, as a young girl, a teenager, a young woman, I was as rampantly insecure as the rest of us, I can tell you that. And, you know, I'm the way I am now um, because of 37 years of living. Because of 57 years of living. Where did that 37 come from? <laughs> I, t I, I tell people, like, oh, no, I'm as often as possible. You know, yeah. no, t um, uh, and in fact, you know, because people do ask me the same question, and, you know, th uh, th there isn't... Um, you know, I, I wish there was an easy answer. It is literally 57 years of life experience. But what I really want to do is help shortcut that process for other women. And, and so, you know, I, you know, I talk to young women everywhere today about how important it is to get over that as much as possible. You started out studying English literature in the UK. What was that transition like from that into advertising? Can you tell me a little bit more about your journey? Sure. So... I, um, I read English literature at Oxford University, and that was where I fell madly in love with theatre, because Oxford has a thriving student drama scene, and so I was president of my college drama society, Somerville. I wrote, acted, directed, stage managed, I did everything, and I just went, oh my God, I want to work in theatre the rest of my life. And I knew, I mean, I really enjoyed it, acting and directing, but I knew I wasn't good enough to be an actress or a director. And I used to draw a lot when I was younger. And so at Oxford, my friends pulled me into designing theatre posters for their shows. And from there, I got sucked into helping sell and market their shows. And I really enjoyed that. So I became a marketing and publicity officer in theatre. And I did that for several years in, in the UK until I got completely fed up with working 24-7 and earning chicken feed, which is what happens in theatre. And... And, and, and so I was feeling very frustrated at a time when I was the marketing officer for the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool. And part of my job promoting the theatre was to give talks about it. So I gave a talk to a group of women. And after the talk, one of them came up to me and she said, young lady, you could sell a fridge to an Eskimo. And I thought, okay, that is the universe telling me something. It's time to sell out the establishment and go into advertising. So I did. Great. And then from there, you joined BBH which was one of the fastest growing ad agencies in Europe. And arguably then, especially in the 80s, it was a very sexist industry, no? How did you navigate that? And how did you come in confidently, or were you confident when you did go in initially? Well, I mean, absolutely. You know, the advertising industry is as sexist today as it's ever been. And it was sexist as hell in the late 80s when I, when I began working it. But a fish doesn't know what water is. It was all around me, and I literally did not notice or think about it because I was a ferociously ambitious account person, you know, working my socks off to climb the career ladder. And, you know, I can look back now and see, you know, egregious examples, but, but at the time, you know, that was the way it was, and so I just never thought about it. And at what point did you realize that, I mean, later in your career, I know you had to negotiate at some point in your career, especially, like, you... People don't just offer you that position as a woman. How did you get there, and did you have to negotiate your way up? Uh, well, um, I, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm all about negotiation based on my own experiences. Um, although at the time, again, I didn't see it as a gender issue. Um, uh, probably because, you know, I'm British. Um, you know, I was working in London and we're all equally uncomfortable talking about money. You know? <laughs> but um, so the very first time I ever negotiated was I was working at an agency called Gold Greenies Trot, GGT. Um, this is before I moved to BBH. And I had a performance and a pay review coming up. And I had a figure in my head that I wanted to get to salary-wise. So I had my review with the head of my department, the head of account management, and the managing director of the agency. And, and it was a very good review. And then they told me the pay raise that I was getting. And it was £1,000 short of where I wanted to be. Mm. So you came and in with your clear number. I had a number in my head, yeah. And so, you know, and obviously, by the way, you know, I was, you know, I would have been 27, 28. You know, um, I was petrified yeah. of, you know, you know, arguing with, with, with what they told me in any way at all. But I just, I just remember thinking, right, the very important thing is just start talking, Cindy. And I've got no idea what I'm going to say, but, but just start saying something. And so, I, you know, £1,000 more, whatever, you know. And they were shocked, okay, because they did not expect me to, to argue with, with, with the pay raise they were giving me. And they looked at each other, and then the managing director said to me, um, can you just, you know, go outside and, and wait outside for five minutes, Cindy? And I went outside, and I stood in the corridor, trembling, and then they called me back in and they gave it to me. Huh. And I thought, right, I've got to do more of this. So, um, How next, did you feel? Yeah. I felt fantastic. I felt fantastic. When you started talking? No, 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 no. When I, when I got what I yeah. asked for. You know. But when you went into that room initially... Oh, oh I, was, I was nervous as hell. You know, I mean, you know, I just began talking. My voice sounded very small and very far away and not coming from me at all. You know, and yet I was petrified. But I, but I just went, you know, I've got, I've got to ask what I want. Mm. You know, and I can't remember how I, I, I did that. So, but then I thought, mm, okay, that works. So the next time I negotiated was um, I joined BBH from GTT. Mm. And BBH at the time was the hottest agency in London. I mean, still is. And, and so they hired me, and they hired me on the same salary that I'd been on at GGT. And, and they, they could afford to do that because everyone was gagging to work there, including me. Um, but they said, you know, if you do as great a job over the next six months as we presume you will, having hired you, then, you know, we'll give you a performance review and we will give you a pay, pay review at that point. So, so, so my, my performance pay review was coming up, and I thought, right, okay, I want a pay rise of £5,000. Now, that's way too much. They're never going to give that to me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I won't settle for less than £3,000. Okay. So, so this became my sort of mantra in my head. You know, um, right, you know, want five, settle for three. Want five, settle for three. Mm. So, so I was kind of going through how I was going to respond. And so, you know, I remember, like, standing outside my um, head of account management's uh, office door, about to go into my performance and pay review, going, want five, settle for three. Want five, settle for three. So, um, so I go in, and, and Mike, my boss, um, gives me this glowing performance review. And everything's great, you know, they love me, I'm doing a fantastic job. And, you know, I, I barely hear any of that because I'm all, all wound up about, about the negotiation I'm going to have to do. Um, and I know that that moment is approaching. And then eventually, kind of, we get there and he goes, right, so, you know, on the pay front, and I'm thinking, right, right, okay, one, five, seven, three, one, five, seven, yeah. And he goes, and, you know, um, given the great job you've done, Cindy, we're going to give you a pay rise of £6,000. And I was so gobsmacked, you know, everything went out of my head. I just looked at him, and I was, I was completely speechless. I was struck completely dumb. And, you know, I, I literally couldn't even, like, move my face. 
And he thought that I was really upset with how low that pay rise was. And he went, but, but, uh, but of course, um, we'll give you another pay review, another six months, and I'm sure then, if, if you're doing as well as you have been, then of course your, your pay will go up even more. And I went, hello, bloody Louia. So yeah, I'm all about negotiation. Yeah, so it seemed like that first time was, in some ways, that micro-action of just... Just say something yeah, and let um, it out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I want you to talk a little bit more about microactions and sure. how that came about, especially as part of if we ran the world. Sure. So um, my, um, the startup that I was working on before Make Love Not Porn um, was and is if we ran the world, which I have had to back burner um, given the way that Make Love Not Porn blew up. Um, even I superhuman as I am, cannot run two startups simultaneously. Although I want to go back and reactivate it once I've raised funding and hired a full-time team for Make Love Not Porn. But If We Ran the World is the expression of all of my personal life and business philosophies born out of over 30 years working in advertising. Um, I believe that change happens from the bottom up, not the top down. And change happens through micro-actions, Microactions are really tiny actions that are so easy to do, why wouldn't you do them? And the reason they're important is because every single one of us, every single day, undertaking microactions to change what we want to see change, cumulatively adds up at scale to enormous impact. So um, If We Ran The World is actually a co-action platform for, for brands and businesses and their consumers. Um, it's based on my belief that the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously, and that the business model of the future, therefore, is shared values plus shared action equals shared profit, financial profit and social profit. In other words, when brands and businesses come together with their audiences, um, consumers, employees, analysts, whoever that may be, on the basis of values that you all share, which, by the way, is the most important requirement for a good relationship in life as much as mm -hmm. business. You will never truly bond with someone who don't share the same values. So when they come together around shared values and when everyone is then enabled to collectively and collaboratively co-act on those values, to walk the talk together, that's when you can make things happen in the real world that will benefit consumers, mm. benefit society, and benefit the brand that's business. Mm. So, so the micro-action is the atomic unit of If Around the World, in the same way the tweet is the atomic unit of Twitter, yeah. because you know, it's taking these little easy actions together that can really um, make big impact. Mm. And I live my own philosophies. So you know, I'm all about micro-actions. You know, and there's an important reason for that also, because you know, I say to people, if you, if you get really depressed about something, you know, to, um, whatever it is, um, take a micro-action, do something. Even if it's just walk to the corner store or whatever. Because action is transformative. Mm -hmm. um, completing a micro-action makes us feel completely differently about ourselves and what we're capable of. And micro-actions are really, you know, my version of repackaging common sense. The journey of a thousand miles begins mm -hmm. with a single step. But, but they literally are, you know, everything in life and business starts with a micro-action. I think about that a lot too, especially with all of the women that I work with in SheWorks. And what we say a lot of times is, is be uncomfortable. How do you do something that makes you feel uncomfortable? And even if it's that smallest thing of just talking to the person at the bar, right? The, a stranger that you wouldn't know. And so I, I really respect this idea of microactions and I, I want you to share a specific microaction that you think other people should take today. Yep, absolutely. So, um, so I talk about microactions a lot. I, I structure quite a bit of my public speaking around them because um, I'm all about action. Yep. 
And I'm all about making the things that I talk to people about extremely actionable and very easily actionable. And obviously, microactions are the key. But there is one microaction that I talk about to everybody that is incredibly easy to do. It requires zero talent, skills, experience. Anybody can take this microaction, but it is the one microaction that when you take it will most profoundly transform your career and your life going forwards. It's a really simple microaction, and it is simply this. Say what you think. No, really. Say what you really think. Because we don't, especially as women. As women, every day we are manterrupted, mansplained to, overlooked, unheard, condescended to, patronized, ignored, dismissed. And so it's really easy in those circumstances to stop saying what you think. When you do that, you are not delivering your value to the business you work in, and you're not delivering your value to, to build a life you want to live. And so it's really important that everybody says what, what they think because you know, honesty is enormously powerful in business because so few people are. Mm. Telling the truth is very endearing because so few people do. But there's another really important reason why you must say what you think because it's only when you say what you really think that you find out what you really think. Again, as women, we are put in so many circumstances that make it really hard to say what we really think that when we stop saying what we really think, we lose sight of what we really think. When you just, wherever you are, in whatever circumstances, um, when you say what you really think, you begin realizing what you really do think and then you're unable to act on it. I feel that myself, I've been in rooms where I've had something I want to say, and the longer I don't say it, the more it becomes a cloud of yeah. comments that I wanted to say, and then I, and then I lose that train, yeah. and then you yeah. end up silent. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And by the way, no men have that problem. You know, I mean, we've all, been, we've all been in that situation where we're in a meeting, and we go, you know, I want to say this, but they might laugh at me. Or I want to say this, but, but maybe that's really silly and stupid. And so you don't say it. And then five minutes later, somebody else says it, usually a man. Everyone goes, great idea. <laughs> and then everyone so, falls yeah, into line. Yeah, yeah, kill that syndrome. Yeah, <laughs> say what you think. Yeah. At what point did it occur to you that I just say whatever I think? Has that always been a part of you? Or, you know, was there, I don't know, what did you tell yourself? And what was that a moment when you crossed that threshold? Yeah, I mean, there, there wasn't a moment. I, I, I pretty much have spent most of my life saying what I think, actually. Um, uh, I, guess, I guess to some extent because, because I've never really thought about it. And, and so it, it's funny, you know, I, I will be interviewed where people say to me, so, you know, Cindy, you know, you're, you're very outspoken, you're very confident. And I will go, you know, I never describe myself as outspoken because I'm just being me. And, and, and the fact you think I'm outspoken when all I'm saying is what I really think says a great deal more about societal convention yes, yeah. and the fact that people do not say what they think than about anything that I'm doing. I want to talk about one of the moments when you had tweeted after Chairman Kevin Roberts of Saatchi and Saatchi said that the gender debate is over. And for... A lot of people, they might just let that comment brush by, but you didn't. And tell me about speaking up at that moment and then what happened after that. Sure. Well, well actually, um, you know, uh, what, what I did then was because I was asked to. So this was um, a Friday back in August of last year. And uh, Laura O'Reilly, who was working at Business Insider at the time, um, sent me an email 
and she said, um, Cindy, um, I've just done an interview with Kevin Roberts, um, whom I obviously knew, um, and he's just said this about you. And, 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 and she, didn't, she didn't actually show me the rest of the interview. And, and she, she dropped in just what he'd said about me. And it was something like, you know, she had asked him about diversity. Um, he, he'd said that the, you know, the f***ing debate is over. I mean, that's literally what he said to a reporter. Um, and Lara had gone, you know, but Cindy Gallup, you know, talks about this issue a lot. And Kevin had said something along the lines of, you know, she's doing it to promote herself, she's making it all up, you know, um, blah, 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 and, and some various insulting things about me. And, and, and Laura said in this email, um, and we thought it was only fair to give you a chance to respond to this before we publish the interview. So, you know, to be frank, I mean, I looked at that email, and all I thought was, oh, for God's sake, you know, yet another one of these, you know, white senior guys in advertising, you know, burbling. And, um, and, and, and so I just responded to Lara. I mean, I mean, the way I would respond to anything like that, um, I said, you know, uh, you know my, uh, my comment is, um, I recommend that, you know, um, that I don't respond to this, but that the men and women of the advertising industry around the world do. And I'd suggest that, you know, they look at what Kevin said, and they tweet at him, and here's his Twitter handle, and let them tell him if they think that I'm making it all up. Okay, that, that was all I said. And so the interview was printed that afternoon, put uh, a post online, and Twitter went apeshit. Um, and, and in fact, you know, when they posted it, I saw the whole interview, because as I say, Lara had only, you know, sent me the bit where he talked about me. And I mean, the whole interview was appalling. Um, and so lots of people, including a lot of very prominent people, you know, in advertising on, on the brand marketer client side, um, tweeted their disgust at what Kevin Roberts had said. And, and, and I should say, by the way, I've met Kevin Roberts maybe two or three times in the course of my advertising career. He had always been incredibly nice to me. I mean, I was really taken aback myself when I saw what he'd said about me. Um, well, he but, clearly didn't say what he thought. Uh, yeah, no, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so that was Friday afternoon, evening. On Saturday, um, publicist group um, who... Um, own Saatchi and Saatchi, which is what Kevin uh, Roberts was chairman of, um, suspended him um, and sent an internal email which was leaked to the press saying that his comments do not reflect our values at all. And and in the meantime, the story gathered momentum, uh, which was, to be frank, you know, this was all really aggravating for me because I was out in the Hamptons that weekend with some very old friends I hadn't seen in a very long time, you know, staying with them, catching up. And this completely derailed my weekend because every possible media publication contacted me for a comment. Um, I think the BBC covered it on Saturday night. And so I woke up on Sunday to all of the UK publications contacting me for comments and interviews. Um, I mean, the whole thing gathered momentum over, over the next few weeks. Um, How are you feeling at this point as everything's gathering momentum? Um, to, well, 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 to, well, to be frank, um, really annoyed um, <laughs> because my life and work was derailed by, by, by all of this. And I'm trying to keep a struggling sex tech startup alive under very challenging circumstances. Um, and, and, and so Campaign, Campaign Magazine, which is um, a very big ad industry trade publication in the UK, um, contacted me when the following Monday, um, Kevin Roberts resigned. Okay. And they asked me for a statement on this. And so I gave them a statement, which was then picked up by other media publications. And I said, first of all, you know, I think that um, publicists should have fired him. 
Um, they shouldn't have allowed him to resign or made that be the public story. They, it would have made, made a bigger statement of their values if they had said, and we're firing him because of this. I mean, it's obviously what they did. But, 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 you know, I mean, ask yourself, by the way, how many senior women in a similar position would have been cut that slack about, you know, a statement that says resigned? Blah, blah, blah. And then I said, um, however, you know, I observe that publicists now have a vacancy for a leadership coach, which is what Kevin Roberts was, and Saatchi and Saatchi Worldwide have a vacancy for chairman. I would like to offer my services to fill those positions, and just so that there is no question at all of any kind of gender inequity on the salary front, I'll be happy to do it for the same salary that Kevin Roberts has been paid, $4 million a year. How is that received? Uh, well, I never heard from Sartre the publicist, um, <laughs> but it was very well received um, by you know the people who appreciated that. Um, but, but but actually, you know, I, I said that um, to make a point, Lisa, which um, I want to make as part of this um, podcast, which is Kevin Roberts was being paid four million dollars a year to keep women out of leadership, mm. and nobody is paying me anything to get women into it. Okay, and um, and I've been making this point to journalists, um, especially recently, because I am called all the time. Um, and in fact, I've had to apologize to my you know, advertising industry trade journalists, because um, when they call and ask me this, I say, listen, you know, I'm about to sound very frustrated. And I just want you to know, I'm not frustrated at you. It's because I'm sick and tired of being asked this question. They call and go, so Cindy, why do you feel change isn't happening in the advertising industry? on gender equality and diversity. Um, so I get really fed up with answering this question. But, but I will go, here's one of the reasons I know change isn't happening. Because none of this is showing up in my bank account. And I make that point not out of self-interest, although I would very much like it to show up in my bank account. I make that point because it's emblematic of the fact that my industry is not putting its money where its mouth is. Okay? It is not investing in changing gender inequality and lack of diversity. And that's across the, the board. Uh, and that's across the board in every industry. Yeah. There's a very simple way to do it, by the way. Hire me. Hire me as a consultant to make your company gender equal and diverse. Mm. And the reason I say that is because I have a very specific approach to this, uh, which I operate in my own public speaking and, and, and my own work, which is actually an expression of the creative philosophy that we had at BBH, where we said of the work that we did, we don't sell, we make people want to buy. I don't sell diversity, I make people want to buy it. And what I mean by that is, you know, I am doing what our industry should be doing, which is what we do for our clients. I'm applying tremendous ingenuity and cleverness of strategy and highly creative execution, because that's the only way that you will make change happen. You can cite rational facts and figures about the beneficial impact that diversity has on business till you're blue in the face. If rational facts and figures worked, we'd be looking at a very different situation than the one we're looking at now. They don't, okay? Um, nothing works until you feel that you want to change. And the reason change is not happening in the advertising industry is exactly the same reason that change is not happening in tech and change is not happening in any other industry. And that reason is that at the top of every single industry, is a closed loop of white guys talking to white guys about other white guys. Those white guys are sitting very pretty. They have their enormous salaries, their gigantic bonuses, their massive pools of stock options, their lavish expense accounts. Why 
would they ever want to rock the boat? Oh, 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 they have to talk diversity. They have to point ahead of diversity. They have to have an in, a diversity initiative in place, a diversity program. They have to say the word diversity a lot publicly. Secretly, deep down inside, they don't want to change a thing because the system is working just fine for them the way it currently is. It's like the old joke about a light bulb. How many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb has to really want to change. The light bulb does not really want to change. I resonate with that completely because of the work that I do specifically in tech in helping female entrepreneurs get access to investors, where very similarly, small group of white men at the top, 94% male dominated. And we see this now with everything that's happening regarding sexual harassment in venture capital. And the facts and figures are there. I'm tired of hearing people say, I can't find women to invest in. And we bring together hundreds of women and we're like, here they are. There's no pipeline problem. It is the fact that people still don't want to change if they're being served by the system. And that's exactly mm. no, no, Absolutely. Saying. And also, you know, what you see in tech um, is basically the fact that men get funded on potential and women get funded on proof and not even then. So it's really easy for an old white male VC to look at a young white man with a startup, no matter how stupid, crappy, self-indulgent and ridiculous, and to go, oh, he reminds me of myself at his age. Yeah. I can see myself in him. He's great to have a beer with. I reckon he can do that. Yeah. Let's fund him. With a woman, it's a completely different set of standards. Well, has she done a startup before? Has she ever exited? You know, has she been doing this long enough? Is she doing this well enough? Where's the proof? And you can give proof as a woman to a white male VC till you're blue in the face and he'll still go, nah, I'm not gonna fund her. And by the way, you know, that's, that's for white women. Black women don't even get to have that conversation. You know, white men get funded on potential, white women get funded on proof, black women don't get funded, full stop. Yeah. What do you think is the solution when we talk about, when you talk about selling, making people want to actually buy? Like yeah. what, what is that strategy right now and how are you approaching sure. that? So um, th uh, w what I'm doing is, um, first of all, I'm encouraging every single woman to start her own business, okay? Um, it doesn't matter whether, you know, you've never even thought of being an entrepreneur. You have something that you bring to the table that, that nobody else can. Um, so I'm encouraging every single woman to start her own business. Um, and I'm encouraging every single woman, wh whether she's started doing that or not, to focus unashamedly on making an absolute goddamn f***ing shit ton of money, okay? Um, now, um, uh, there's, there's a different message for if you're still in a job where you, where you absolutely need to do that and there's a message for you as an entrepreneur, as a woman. So first of all, if you're a woman in a job and you know, you've just heard everything I have to say about negotiation, it's incredibly important that you go into your next performance and pay review and you negotiate to earn yourself an absolute goddamn ton of money. And by the way, the amount you ask for is the highest amount you can say out loud without actually bursting out laughing. Okay, that's my recommended tactic and it works. Okay? I hear from women all the time who say, I did that, Cindy, and I got it. Okay? <laughs> um, but, 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 but here's the reason why you have to do that, because I'm asking not to do that just for you, but to do it for us. First of all, if you do not do that, when the senior management in your company look down that massive Excel spreadsheet of all the salaries in your company 
And when they see, as they will, that all the women are paid less than the men, what that translates into in their mind is that that's because the women aren't as good as the men. So first of all, you have to earn the highest amount you possibly can to change that syndrome. But then secondly, I want you to make an absolute golem ton of money. And by the way, I say it like that because that's how much money I want you to make. Because when you do that, you can then fund other women. You can donate to other women. You can support other women. You can help other women. We need to design and build our own financial ecosystem because the white male one isn't working for us. So that's, that's a message to women who are currently in jobs, employed. To women who are entrepreneurs, the reason you have to make an absolute god ton of money with your startup is because I, um, I spoke um, two years ago at the fantastic Inspire Fest in Dublin, which is a tech conference committed to being utterly diverse. Um, its speakers are regularly 70 to 80% women. They, they are fully diverse. And I was one of the final speakers two years ago. And um, I came out on stage after we'd had lots of panels and talks about all of the challenges we all face. And I said to the audience, you have no idea how immediately all of the barriers and obstacles we face will melt away like magic the moment we demonstrate that we can make an absolute god shit ton of money. Because that's the only thing that solves all of this. Money makes um, the world on, go round. Uh, 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 on both sides. Yeah. Us making a huge amount of money means that we can then fund other women. You know, we need many more female investors to fund the women who are not getting funded by the men. And us as female entrepreneurs demonstrating that our startups make a huge amount of money will mean that suddenly, magically, every white male VC will want to fund us. I'm absolutely serious. Um, the moment we have a colossal exit from a female founder, the moment we have, you know, round after round of Series B, Series C, Series D being raised by women at the same kind of multi-million dollar level that men are raising them, all of this goes away. Mm -hmm. And it all starts with the internal. I think before any of this, right, every negotiation, every mm. ask, mm. Every, every hand raise, mm. it starts with... Maybe I'm not good enough to ask for this raise, to raise my hand. What specifically would you tell those women who, are, who believe that they have the potential to, to change the world, but there's just sure. something? So, um, so, so I would say um, your starting point has to be the same principle that I operate on and I recommend to other entrepreneurs, which is... When you have a truly world-changing startup, you have to change the world to fit it, not the other way around. When you have a truly world-changing vision of what you want to do for yourself, you have to change the world to fit you and not the other way around. And it's very important that you adjust your mindset to think like that, because what I mean in the more everyday example you've just given me of, you know, how do you go into a pay review? and You literally have to go, I'm going to make this scenario and this environment and this meeting work for me, not the other way around. And if it doesn't, I'm going to leave. Okay, Because nobody, especially women, should be trying to fit themselves into a situation that doesn't appreciate them. You know, So you know, go in and ask for the highest amount you can say out loud without actually bursting out laughing. Because on the response to that will depend whether or not you stay in that job. You know, and, and, and by the way, I say that fully anticipating that you'll be pleasantly surprised by the outcome. You know, As I said earlier... I hear from women literally every single week who tell me they took my advice and it worked. Mm. Last week, a woman wrote to me and she said, 
you know, she, she had a performance and peer review coming up. She said, you know, I, I absolutely thought about your advice, Cindy. You know, I, I was sitting there in fear and trembling. I thought, I know Cindy says I've got to go in there and ask for the highest amount I can say out loud without actually bursting out laughing. I can't do that. I can't do that. You know, but what she said, I forced myself. I went in there. I asked for that amount and I got it plus $5,000. She said, I doubled my salary thanks to you. Yeah. So, you know, when you start doing this, you will be gobsmacked at the results. Um, uh, a female friend of mine, um, we were having drinks last year, and I think it was only because we were both quite drunk that the conversation went this way in the evening. She happened to mention that the next day she had a performance and pay review, and she was, you know, really worried that they were not going to give her what she wanted. And, you know, I said to her, okay, you know, tell me what, tell me what you're being paid. And she told me. And I was horrified. I know this woman very well. She, she's brilliant. She's doing a fantastic job for the company that, that, that she works for. She's very well known in our industry. And her salary was no way commensurate with her value to the company. So I said, okay, here's what you do. Okay, give her lots of advice. So um, she went, okay, great. So she contacted me um, a few weeks later and said, oh, my God, I owe you the best dinner at the best restaurant you can possibly name. Um, and and uh, and I didn't see her for a bit, but I, then I ran into an industry event, and she told me, she said, I went home that night, I tore up the script. And I went into the meeting the next day, and I did what, what you recommended. And so two things happened. Okay, First of all, her boss, who was a man, said to her, I would have been very disappointed if you just accepted what we gave you. Okay, I mean, This is why, by the way, is that I tell women all the time, negotiate because when you do that, you demonstrate your business value to the company. They want you to negotiate hard with what you do for them. All you're doing is having a business conversation about business and demonstrating your business skills. Okay, So that was result number one. Result number two was, um, and this wasn't all cash, because what I recommend also is slice the pie differently. And so maybe there are other things you want that are, you know, more paid leave or, you know, or a change in title or whatever that, um, you know, other parts of the package. But anyway, my friend told me that the difference between what she was going to just accept and what she got after she took my advice was the equivalent of $100,000. That's the money women are leaving on the table when we do not negotiate. And, and incidentally, um, another thing I recommend to women in that situation is, if you anticipate um, any specific barriers, call them out. Okay, this goes back to say what you really think. Okay, anything you go in there into your negotiation with that you are worried about in your mind, say it out loud. So my friend Teresa did this brilliant thing. So this is a number of years ago. She was um, being interviewed for a job that she very much wanted, and the interviews had gone frightfully well. And and so they put the pay package on the table, and it wasn't what she wanted. And so she knew that she was going to have to go in there and negotiate. And this was around the time that a study came out. These studies come out all the time. But a study came out that demonstrated, based on data, that when men negotiate, they are seen as strong, confident, ambitious go-getters. When we negotiate, nobody likes us. Yeah. Men and women alike. Okay, nobody likes us when we negotiate. So Teresa pulled this genius move. Okay? She goes into this meeting with you know, her, hopefully, future employers. And she says, at the start of it, she goes, um, so, you know, if you don't mind, you know, but before we begin, I just have one thing that I want to just put on the table. Studies have said, I'm here to negotiate. And studies have shown, the moment I do that, you're going to like me less. So, I just thought, get that on the open, put it on the table, now let's start. Genius move, because everyone instantly went, 
oh my God, oh my God, must not like her less, must not like her less. And she negotiated and she got everything she wanted. So you can totally call it out, say what you really think, in a charming and witty way, and you'll get results. Love that. Um, I have a question for you regarding enoughness and at what point will you feel like you have done enough or been successful enough? Um, because some of the issues that we're tackling here are, I mean, according to the World Economic Forum, it'll take another 170 years before we reach economic gender parity. And like, what do we need to do? At what point is it enough? Right, okay, so two responses to that question. First of all, personally, um, oh my God, I am totally not successful. I'm a spectacular failure. I have spent three years trying to raise just $2 million to scale Make Love Not Porn, and I've totally failed. I haven't. I haven't been able to raise it. You know, I'm setting out to raise $200 million to start the world's first and only sex tech fund, all the sky holdings. I've got no idea if I'll be able to do that. Okay? So I've not succeeded in anything that I want to succeed in as yet. Okay? Um, but, but the more important response is it's not about that. Um, in the sense that, so I get asked questions that are a variation on the one you've just asked me all the time, okay? So, so you've just asked, you know, when will, when will it be enough? When, you know, I get asked also by journalists about Make Love Not Porn, so Cindy, why do you think we're all so messed up about sex? When do you think all this will change, we'll be less repressed? You know, I get asked about, you know, when do you think the advertising industry will be diverse and gender equal? And... I usually start laughing when I'm asked a question like that. And I explain to whoever's asked me it, um, I'm sorry, I'm not laughing at you, I'm laughing at the way you've asked that question. And again, the way you've asked that question is no reflection on you because this is the way we are socially conditioned to think. You've asked that question in the passive tense. Everything changes when people like you and I make it change. And I don't wait for things to change, I make them change. So it's not a question of when will there be, it's a question of I'm going to well change that. And I will never be done working to change that. And that's exactly... Well, well, yes and no. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, the only thing that keeps me going um, with all the battles I face with Make Love Not Porn and sex tech is the dynamic that I characterise as I'm going to f***ing well show you. You tell me it can't be done, I'm going to f***ing well show you. You put us on the path, I'm going to f***ing well show you. You have to take all that disappointment, all that demoralisation, all that depression, all that startup stress, and you have to channel it into inspiration and motivation. And so that's what I do. I've got a lot of people on my I'm going to f***ing well show you list. Who are some of the people who inspire and motivate? I'm asked this question all the time as well. <laughs> and my answer to that is everybody I meet. I'm inspired and motivated by people, by human beings. People are amazing. I mean, literally, you know, everybody I come across is doing extraordinary things. And I'm inspired and motivated by all of that. And incidentally, you know, I'm particularly inspired by the fact that you can't have too many of us coming at all of this in many different ways, okay? So do you remember last year when um, uh, th th there were these women who were protesting the Russian invasion of Ukraine, or Crimea, and they protested topless, okay? Yeah. And I looked at that and I went, I would never in a million years ever do that, but I'm so glad there are women who do that. Yeah. You know, I love the fact that there are women who will go out there and protest in front of the Ukrainian parliament or the Russian parliament, whatever, topless. Oh my God, you know, and so, you cannot have too many of us, each of us in our own little way, taking micro-actions, 
doing things to change in our own unique way. You know, I mean, this is what I mean when I say to women, you've got to say what you really think because your unique value is what you bring to the table. And if you don't say what you really think, you're not contributing it. And so every one of us has the capacity to do things to change all of this in very specific ways that are unique to us. You know, and if your thing is demonstrating topless, go out there and do it. That's fantastic. You know, that's not my thing, but I'm doing this in other ways. What advice would you give men? So I have two very simple pieces of advice for men who want to change all of this and who want to help us. Men, you just need to do two things, and they're really simple and they're really easy to do. Number one, listen to us, because you don't. You manterrupt, you mansplain, you talk over us, you don't listen to us. Stop, listen to us. And number two, believe us, because again, you don't. Oh, that's never happened to me, you know. Oh, you know, I've never seen him do anything like that. He's a good guy, he can't possibly be a sexual harasser, etc., etc., etc. Listen to us and believe us. And then what you need to do as a man who wants to help falls out of those two things. Great. Well, on that note, you've given us a lot of actionable advice. And how I like to end every episode is something called one thing. Because I think it takes just one voice, one moment, one person to completely change the way the world operates or change someone's perspective. And you are certainly doing that. But I want to get to some of your one things and some of the things that influence you. So in 30 seconds or less for each question, um, what's one book that you would unhesitatingly recommend and why? I would unhesitatingly recommend a book by Jack Holland that you can order on Amazon called Misogyny, the World's Oldest Prejudice. Because when you read that book, um, as men, you will understand exactly what we as women face every single day. And women, you will understand the dynamics that have created an environment that we can totally change altogether. What's one question you wish people would ask each other more? One question I wish people would ask each other more is any question to do with anybody's sexuality and sex life. My entire mission at Make Love Not Porn is one thing and one thing only, which is to help make it easier for everyone in the world to talk about sex. I'm doing that by socializing and normalizing real-world sex, building a whole new category online, social sex, to encourage this. And, you know, I say to people, your microaction, if you want to help our mission, is just talk about sex every day. And I don't mean literally go out there and talk about sex. I mean, literally, just talk about sex completely normally, as it would occur in a conversation in a way that we do not currently. What's one thing you wish you had told yourself earlier on, your younger self? I wish I'd told myself much earlier on, Cindy, get out of the corporate world and go and work for yourself. I have no regrets about my life and career, but the one thing I wish is that I'd started my own business a damn sight sooner. Is there one thing that you would bring to an island for the rest of your life, one object, what would that be? Martinez. <laughs> martinis. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a toss-up between martinis or my vibrator. Um, I, I, on the assumption I'm on this island alone. Um, but I think on the whole that I would really, really enjoy martinis. Great. And lastly, what is one thing that one piece of advice you want to leave for the audience that we haven't already covered today? I think, I think the, one, the one piece of advice that I would leave for your audience is know that the only person who can make things happen for you is you. And I say that because especially, I mean, this is true for any industry, by the way, but especially for those in your audience who may, for example, be female entrepreneurs um, in tech, um, it's very easy to get the impression that everything depends on who you know, 
on networking, on you know getting to meet people. Yes, I mean, that's enormously helpful. But at the end of the day, the only person who can make things happen for you is you. You make that shit happen for yourself. And that starts with just one micro-action. Yeah, yeah, and just take micro-actions to make it happen. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Cindy. I am so grateful to have you on the show today and for all of the work that you've been doing for men and women alike and just fucking changing the world. So thank you so much. I'm right back at you. And, and it's been an absolute pleasure. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. I created the Enoughness podcast to reveal the real stories behind the leaders we admire, to address this universal question that we all have at some point or another. Am I good enough? So just remember that you're not on this journey alone and that you do have the power of enoughness. If you want the full show notes and transcript from today's episode, go to www.lisawang.co slash podcast. Again, that's lisawang.co slash podcast. And you'll be able to follow along. I'd love if you could leave a review or tag anything that you share on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag enoughness. And you can find me at Lisa Works, L-I-S-A-W-O-R-X on Twitter or Instagram. Catch you in the next episode.